0: Welcome to Musicians Versus the World. My daughter just started playing clarinet with her school band. And so I thought it would be really fun for us to watch a performance of a professional playing the clarinet to, you know, to inspire her and to show her what the possibilities are with her new instrument. We listen to a lot of different types of music in the car, but we don't often just sit down and watch something and really pay attention to it, so I thought this would be fun. So my kids were doing homework or video games or something, and I pulled up a video on YouTube of what I think is the best orchestral piece to introduce kids to the woodwinds. It has a very singable tune, and the orchestration is just really exciting and interesting. And of course, I am talking about Ravel's Bolero. So I casted the performance onto our TV so we could listen to it with our good sound system. And the kids immediately noticed that the conductor was conducting with a toothpick instead of a regular baton, and they thought that was hilarious. But then the music caught them, and they were entranced. They had a blast looking at all of the different instruments that got their solos and naming them and listening to the way each of them sounded. And then when the clarinet got its solo, my daughter's eyes just lit up. And she was completely inspired and she was just enamored with the sound that her instrument could make. And after the performance was done, she looked at me and said, huh, I think I'd better go practice. And that's what a good orchestral performance can do. But what does it take to be a musician in that accomplished orchestra? In our third installment of our auditions series, we're going to take a look at auditions from the side of the auditioner. What should a serious music student look for in a college? And what sort of life should an orchestral musician expect? And do the auditions ever stop? My special guests are Madeline and Brian Blanchard. Both are incredibly talented musicians, and both play the French horn. I met them years ago when we were all living in North Carolina, and Brian was playing for the North Carolina Symphony at the time. We've since both moved away from North Carolina, Madeline has earned her law degree and practices law full-time, and plays with the orchestra at Temple Square. And Brian now has tenure with the Utah Symphony in Salt Lake City, Utah. We chatted over the summer and they were kind enough to share their insights and their expertise with me for this podcast. So I hope that you enjoy part three of our Musicians vs. Auditions series with Madeline and Brian Blanchard. I always like to start out by asking people what got them into music. So if you wouldn't mind telling me how you started with this whole music life.
1: I got started because my whole family is a bunch of musicians. So it was, it was not an option for me if I was going to play some sort of instrument. My parents took me to a high school band concert when I was eight. And the band played the music from the movie Robin Hood, the Kevin Costner movie. And it has the music that goes like bum ba dum ba dum ba da ba bu, bum bum ba bum bum and the horns played that and they put their bells up in the air and I thought that was the coolest thing. And so <laughs> from then on I decided that was it. Just got started playing it and loved it. Got better and better and got to play better and better music and pretty soon into that, thirteen or fourteen, I was hooked. And I that's all I wanted to do with my time and with the rest of my life.
0: (laughs) So Madeline, was was Robin Hood a turning point in your
2: life too? (laughs) (laughs) No. So I grew up in Texas, like Brian, but far apart from Brian. And my family moved the summer in between fifth and sixth grade. And in sixth grade is when you can start band in the Texas public schools. And at my old school, I had signed up to learn the oboe. But when I got to my new school, they already had too many people starting the oboe, if you can imagine how that that was a popular choice back then. So the band director said, well, there's an extra horn in the closet. How do you feel about that? And I said, okay. So that little chance decision of an extra horn in the closet changed my course of my life. (laughs) Now, you two met in high school, right? Yes, we met our senior year of high school at Interlochen Arts Academy in Northern Michigan. Okay. So did you two meet because you both played the horn then?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, in the same studio.
2: Mm-hmm. Was there any like friendly competition between the two? No, guys? Brian was already well-established as far superior to myself. Oh.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're selling yourself short, Madeline.
1: For a while, it was difficult for us to play duets together until we kind of realized and we would say, okay, this is just for fun.
0: Yeah. Just for yeah.
1: fun. We're going to play duets together.
0: Oh, because you were too critical of each other and yourselves? Yeah. Too hard on myself or, Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So so then you both, from and you both went to
2: school, but you went to different colleges, right? I'm trying to remember. Yes, that's right. I started at Brigham Young University in Utah.
1: And I went to Roosevelt University in Chicago. But after our sophomore years, we got married and Madeline transferred to Roosevelt in Chicago and, and we both finished there.
2: Yeah, we were very fortunate to study with Dale Clevenger who was the principal horn of the Chicago symphony for many decades. And in our opinion, the best horn player who's ever lived. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> once we got married. We made up 25% of his horn studio. Oh, so you both great. ended up back in the same horn studio again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, um, it was fun. So this is kind of a weird question, but do you feel like your college education was worth the expense and the time yes. of going into it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um,
0: okay, why is that?
1: Yeah, mine was. <laughs> Madeline and I were so fortunate to study with Mr. Clevenger. You know, he had played in the Chicago Symphony by the time we were studying with him for, I think, close to 40 years. So he had done that job at the highest level for that long. And to, So to study with somebody that is just incredibly experienced, and not only that, but an incredible teacher, was just amazing
2: worth every penny.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: (laughs) And to live in a big city where we could go hear the Chicago symphony on Friday night and then sit somewhere else in the hall and hear the Chicago symphony again on Saturday night. And think about how sitting different places changes your perspective and what you're hearing and think about, well, what is the person on the stage having to do to communicate that to that row versus somebody sitting in that row over there? I mean, the education of living in a, in a, big city with a big orchestra is hard to describe
1: yeah it was incredible you know Mr. Clevenger said I expect you to come to hear the orchestra twice a week you know they would play usually three concerts a week sometimes four and so you know I really took him seriously and so I tried to go every chance I could and so over the four years I was there I think I went to about 200 Chicago Symphony concerts yeah it was incredible
2: yeah, being there really taught me that if you want to do something at the highest level, you have to be studying with somebody who's at the highest level because they're at the highest level because they actually do no more mm-hmm. than people on the lower levels. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty basic, but I think it goes to more fields than music. Well, absolutely. Yeah. So that's why you have to be really careful
0: about what school you actually go to. Yes. Yeah, you have to
2: think about the investment you're making and why why you're making that investment,
0: especially since it's so expensive to go to college.
1: Yeah, especially since so many of the really great music schools are private institutions. Right. And so they're very expensive.
0: Okay, so for someone who's wanting to join an orchestra, what should they look for besides the best teachers in the world? when they're trying to go to college? What is it that they should be looking for? Well, number
1: for? one, definitely by far is the teacher. But then number two, I think, is the city. For us, it was just so incredible, not only to hear the Chicago Symphony, but we would go hear the Lyric Opera often, mm-hmm. and we would go see the Joffrey Ballet, and the Berlin Philharmonic would come to town, or Cleveland Orchestra, or the New York Philharmonic, and we would go to those concerts. You know, So, mm-hmm. so much of this business is about... In knowing how things are supposed to sound, it's much harder to get that from a recording.
2: Well, I was going to backtrack a second and say that besides the teacher, I mean, not everybody can study with the greatest teacher, or maybe right. you don't know who the greatest teacher is, or maybe somebody's a great performer, but not a great teacher, or yeah. maybe somebody's a great teacher, Yikes. but not a great performer. I think you have to think about what your end goal is. And if your goal is to play in an orchestra, then Even if it's not the most famous person or your favorite city, I think it's so important to find a teacher who's played in an orchestra because that means that they've won an audition. Otherwise, I mean, you're spending a lot of money investing in somebody to teach you how to win an audition, and maybe they've never won an audition. You have to think about, you know, if you can't have your top choice teacher, what are the other schools you're going to apply to and how are you going to base those decisions you just have to think about well what have they accomplished or what have they what what skills do they have that they could give me
1: yeah who are their students right what are their students done
2: if your goal is to be a college professor maybe you should go to a really famous teacher who's famous because of his or her teaching right Mm -hmm. you know because then they'll teach you how to be a Mm -hmm. good teacher
1: yeah
2: Or if
0: they've had good
2: famous teachers who taught them
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So let's say there's a a student or a teenager that says, Oh, I want to do this. I want to be an orchestral musician, Mm -hmm. but has no idea how to find out who the best teachers are or who the best performers are. What's the, what kind of resources are out there for
2: them? Well, something they have now that they didn't have back in our day was YouTube. So you can watch famous horn players teach or play and,
1: Mm -hmm. And even you can go see, you can watch them teach because you can see their master classes. Often they'll have master classes that are have been recorded and you can watch them. And also, you know, I mean, your own private teacher. I think if you have a private teacher, they will often know who the important people mm-hmm. are. And I know this is the case for the horn and for other instruments too, that there will be conferences. There will be international conferences of the International Horn Society or Flute Society or whatever it is. But there will also be regional conferences that you can go to. Things have recitals and masterclasses, and that's a place to go.
2: Yeah, when you're in high school, Mm -hmm. if you are able to, go to as many band camps in the summer as you can. Mm -hmm. Spend a week at different universities in your state that are holding band camps, and then you'll get a taste for those teachers.
0: That's true, because that's where you get exposed to a lot of different kinds of teachers, and you can figure out what kind of style that works well with you and gets the best sound out of you.
1: Right, right. And I think one thing that a lot of people— don't do or don't value or don't realize is important is that when you are, let's say you're you know, a junior, especially a junior is a good time to start, but junior and senior in high school, if you're interested in going to a certain school to study with somebody, you need to go there and get a lesson with that person. Or, or see if you can go to their master class if they don't have time to give you a private lesson, but they usually will.
2: Just write that professor and say, I want to fly in and I want to listen to you teach some lessons or you teach a master class. I want to come to horn studio class. Mm-hmm. Can I do that? When's a good time and I can do that?
1: I think there are a lot of people that just say, oh, I want to go to such and such school. That teacher is really famous. And then they just apply and audition and that's it mm-hmm. when really you need to... It's, experience it. You it's know, such a big
2: investment of your yeah. life, and it changes the course of your life. That yeah, being willing to spend some time and energy and money ahead of time is a good idea.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. So, did
0: you go to Chicago for that particular teacher?
1: Yeah, that's the only reason I went there. Hmm. Um, I mean, it, it happened. It was also a good school. I, I I enjoyed it there, but yeah, that was the whole reason to go.
0: Yeah, what did you play for your audition? Oh,
1: (laughs) it was incredibly difficult. (laughs) They took the audition list from the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, which is the training orchestra for the Chicago Symphony. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that orchestra is for people who are in school and usually people who have finished graduate school. So I was having to learn this music that graduate students were playing. It was just incredibly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um So like I can't remember. I'm held, I'm held in Laban by Strauss, an entire Mahler symphony. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it was really hard, but you know,
0: a
2: concerto.
1: Yeah, plus a concerto. Wow! Yeah. And
2: how long did it take you to prep for that? I mean, that was kind of the yeah. point of interlocking, yeah. right? We spent uh, college auditions happened in February, so we spent the whole September through February getting ready. For yeah, it. I would That's think good. so. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and
1: looking up words in German, (laughs) so I knew what I was supposed to play.
0: (laughs) So, Madeline, how did it work with you transferring up to Chicago? Was was there an audition process for you?
2: Yes, I actually surprised Brian on Valentine's Day and flew from Utah to Chicago, and I uh, was hopeful that we would be getting married at some point in the near future. So, I scheduled behind his back, scheduled an audition on a, on a Monday, because Dale always taught us on Mondays his day off from the symphony. So they just paused lessons for a few minutes and the Dean and somebody else came in to listen and I played an audition and I, uh, I was pretty nervous. It was pretty nerve wracking playing the greatest and, uh, but it went okay. Or they had a spot. I don't know, but I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I was really grateful for that opportunity to even have two years to those second two years of college to to study with him. So after you graduated from there, what
0: was the next step for you? How did that next decision happen?
2: Well, one important thing that happened was that we had a kid. We had our first child in Chicago right after we graduated from college. So I had a newborn to cuddle and um, I wasn't going to pursue any more school at that time. But I was interested in whatever city we eventually lived in. Hopefully, subbing in the symphony or playing for the, you know, the ballet or the opera orchestra or things like that. That was kind of my career outlook. And teaching private lessons, I wanted to teach lessons. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and all I ever wanted to do was play in an orchestra. And so after we graduated, then um, I went to Rice University in Houston for graduate school, which is another top school for training in, in particular, but it's a great music school too.
0: Great. So then, um, so how far in your education did you go, Brian?
1: So I did a year of my master's. It's a two-year program, but I didn't finish. I didn't finish because I, at the end of my first year of my master's, I got a job in the Kansas City Symphony. And so, you know, in, in the orchestral world, you know, once you have a playing position, the degree is not very important. So.
0: Right. Cause then it becomes work experience at that point.
1: Yeah. So I started taking auditions. I think my first one was my sophomore year of college, um, which is pretty early for people. Most Mm -hmm. people will wait until at least, you know, the end of their undergraduate, but usually graduate degrees. And even after that, but I, I knew that's all I wanted to do was play in an orchestra. And the way you get into an orchestra is you win an audition. And so I started taking auditions early and. Whenever I could and whatever I thought I could afford to fly to whatever city it was and take an audition. So, yeah, graduate school, same thing. I was taking auditions and eventually won an audition.
0: That's well, how did you find the audition? Yeah, was-
1: so um, orchestras are required by their unions to post the positions on the International Musician, which is the magazine for the American Federation of Musicians National Union.
0: Oh, okay. So you would just
2: look and say, oh, this is an opening. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go for it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: They post on the first of the month. So for many years, every first of the month, Brian gets up early and checks to see what the jobs are.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: So even after you were in an orchestra,
0: you would still go every month and take a look for new auditions.
1: Yeah, because, you know, like any career there, you can move up, right? There are bigger, better positions. And so I was always looking. Kansas City was a great place to live and a great job. I really liked it there. But at the time, at least, it did not pay very well. And so we were always looking to uh, make ends meet. So, yeah, I was always looking to other auditions. And, and of course, the goal, at least when you start out, is, oh, I want to be in the Chicago Symphony or the Cleveland Orchestra or whatever, you know, the biggest orchestras in the world. And so you got to keep auditioning if you want to get into one of those.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, explain to me, how do the auditions work. You see the listing. Mm-hmm. Do you mail an application or do you just call them up or do you just show up the day of auditions? What
1: happens? Yeah. So you send in your resume and that's all the application is usually just, and usually just a one page resume, actually. It's not even, you know, a full CV or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so if they think your resume is good enough, then they invite you to come audition. Different orchestras do it differently. Some will only invite candidates who have, you know, real professional experience. Some orchestras, like even big orchestras like the Chicago Symphony will let anybody audition. Oh, really? Yeah. But then others, you have to have already won an audition or have studied at one of the top conservatories. So it just depends on the orchestra. And so if they invite you to the audition, then they send you a list of orchestral excerpts and concertos to prepare. And it's usually between 20 and 40 different excerpts to prepare. So it's a lot of music, but it's all wow. It's all stuff that you've been studying since you you know the whole time you've been. In oh, school,
0: okay. You know, so it's kind of kind of standards.
1: Yeah, so it could be like for the horn, um, like a, a part of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. There are big things to play for the mm-hmm. horn in there, so you will have been practicing that since you you know started college probably but they're so hard that it takes years and years to be able to do it. Right. So most of the music on there is is not going to be new to you, but it's just, you know, it's such difficult music that you have to keep practicing it. So they send you the list of stuff to play. They invite you to come audition. You pay your own way to go to the audition. Uh, Generally there will be three rounds of the audition. Uh, So you play in the first round, play maybe, maybe 10 minutes. And... Yeah, you play the first round. If you're if they like you enough, then you get to go to the second round, do the same thing, maybe a bit more playing, maybe 15 minutes of playing. And then if they like you enough, then you go to the final round. Um, and usually the first two rounds of the audition are screened, so the committee cannot see who's playing. Many orchestras in the final round will take the screen down um, so they can see who's playing and mm-hmm. also so that they can do chamber music so you could play with members of the orchestra. Um, but increasingly orchestras are starting to have the entire audition be blind so the committee never sees the candidate they can just hear them play
0: that takes a lot of the politics out yeah, of it yeah that's it the goal like.
1: that's the goal to try to make it as fair as possible oh
0: i like that i'm glad that they're doing that now yeah
1: not every most i would say most orchestras don't do oh. that. <laughs> but yeah usually they will tell you right away or you know they'll the committee will deliberate for a while and vote And then, yeah, they'll tell you pretty much right away. Auditions
2: often end in a no hire.
1: That's true. Yeah. Sometimes they won't hire anybody. Really? Yeah.
2: So what do they do? Just post it again?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Then have the audition. Usually it takes another year to be able to schedule another audition. Yeah. Hire a long-term sub or something like that. Yeah.
0: Mm, Okay. So now they are wanting people with experience, with professional experience. So that first job that you got while you were, you're getting your master's degree, they were mm-hmm. taking kind of a leap of faith on you because you had no professional experience at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think actually if I'm remembering, right. That was one that was blind all the way through. So they didn't know oh, who think. they were offering the job to.
0: Oh, gotcha.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's the goal of having blind auditions is that it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, how much experience you have. It just matters how you play that day.
0: Yeah, and then once you're in, you've got your foot in the door, and all of a sudden you have experience that opens all sorts of
1: doors yes. for you. Yes, yes. Then all of a sudden orchestras that wouldn't have invited you to come audition, oh, this person has a job now, okay, they can come. Yeah.
2: And why do you think they want experience? Maybe you should explain that.
1: Oh, because because playing in an orchestra is hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the music we play you know, I told you about the excerpts that we have to learn that are really, really hard. You know, the stuff you have to play at an audition is all of the hardest music that's written for your instrument. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, we don't play music that that is that difficult. So the notes, probably, you know, a pretty good college student could play most of the notes that I have to play in the orchestra. But to play them very close to perfectly and very close to perfectly with other people around you all the time, That's really hard to do. That's Mm -hmm. why you need the training and the experience of playing in an orchestra to do it. And that's, so that's why we want experienced people to do it.
0: You decided to not continue your master's. You're playing in Kansas City, correct?
1: Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So how long
2: did you stay there?
1: I was there for one season. So Almost the calendar. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Well, I guess it was more than yeah, a calendar. You, yeah.
2: you started your second season.
1: That's right. Yeah. So like September to the following October, it was just like the Kansas city thing. I mean, we liked it, but then I just got a better opportunity in St. Louis, but the St. Louis position was, uh, just a one year contract. So that whole, that year I was taking auditions and um, because I didn't know if I would have a contract for the next year. So I had to keep looking.
0: Okay, so how long was it before you actually stayed somewhere longer than just one season? <laughs> we're just we're just now many years later, ten years later at that point in our life. <laughs> yeah. You're back right. in Utah now and you're in the symphony there. Yeah, so I'm back
1: in the Utah Symphony. Yeah.
2: And he has been here this time. So yeah. this is the first time we've we've made it somewhere more than two seasons now. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. That has to feel good.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's so nice. I mean, I love my job. I mean, just because of the job itself, you know, all I have to do when I go to work is play my instrument. That's pretty great. But also, I love my colleagues. It's been so fun to be somewhere for a while, and so I've made really good friends. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah, so... Now, how does, the, how does the balance, the family life work now that you've got a, a full-time symphony job, you've got a full-time law practice? How does that work? How do you ever see each other?
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: In passing. <laughs> yeah, in
1: passing.
2: <laughs> Just that phase of life, right? Yep. Yeah. We, we, we waved to each other on the road yesterday, mm-hmm. passing our car. <laughs> and Brian gets home from rehearsal, usually about the same time as the kids get off the school bus. And I'm still at work. And Brian, I I was a stay-at-home mom, you know, for eight years. So Brian's making mm-hmm. up that for lost time, and he makes dinner yeah. now, or we oh, or we scrounge around, and uh-huh. you know we eat and we do, <laughs> we do homework. And sometimes, you know, if it's a weekend or a night that Brian has has a concert, then he goes off and plays his concert, and and I'm the main parent in the evening sometimes when that happens, and. Um yeah, so. So it's just like any other. Just like any two-income houses, but I would yeah. say it's better than most two-income houses because even though Brian's job is full-time, it's really only ever about twenty hours a week.
1: Yeah, of actual time at rehearsal or concert. Right, because yeah.
0: you're at home practicing the rest of the time.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, that leads to the last question I like to ask everybody. Would you make the same decisions that you did if you knew then what you know now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm one of the fortunate few who has, you know, a full-time orchestral job, you know, on the horn. there aren't that many people in the country that can say that. I don't know, maybe 120. 150 horn players in the country, you know, get to play in an orchestra and make their living that way or make a decent living. And so, yeah, for me, it was totally worth it. But I remember when I was in Kansas City, I had just started and my parents came to my first main, my first, you know, big classical concert. I had to play this solo in one of the pieces. And it was really a solo where everybody else stopped playing. And it was just me for like, You know, not very long, six seconds or less, less probably. It was like 20 notes. Anyway, Mm -hmm. and it's in the last movement of the uh, Chopin Piano Concerto. And so the first two movements, I'm sitting there playing my part and it's not, you know, difficult, no solos, but I was just incredibly nervous for that solo coming up. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is so horrible. I feel awful. This is not worth it. This is just terrible. And then we get to the solo, and of of course, I had practiced that really hard. And so it went fine in the performance. It was fine. After the concert, I'm in the car with my parents driving home, and they said, well, Brian, what's it like? What's it like to be a professional musician? You're in a professional orchestra, what you've always wanted. And I said, every second in the practice room, every dollar you spent on my lessons and instruments and stuff like that, all of it was completely worth it. I love it. So yeah, I'd totally do it again. Even though there have been there have been some rough parts along the way, some some low moments, but yeah, I would definitely do it again. What about you, Madeline?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think picking that horn out of the closet when I was 11 years old brought me my husband, which brought me my two beautiful children, and brought me this whole life where music has been and will always be a big part of my life and now practicing law, I keep it up by obviously hearing it in my house all the time, but also I play as a member of the orchestra at Temple Square, which is the volunteer orchestra that accompanies the Tabernacle Choir, formerly known as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And I've gotten to go on tour to other countries um, playing in this orchestra. And, you know, in some moments I think, wow, I I had this amazing teacher in college and now I'm just in a volunteer group. But it's not like that. It's not just any volunteer group. I think of it more as I have these unique things that this teacher in college taught me, and it has allowed me to serve, to give of my time, and bring unique contributions because of that really specialized education that I got. And I feel really lucky to be able to have such an amazing group to still have a good reason to keep my skills up. And it adds this beautiful balance to my very intensive days as an attorney to be able to pick up the horn at the end of the day and come back to that that's been such a constant throughout my life and for the last 24 years I've played the horn and yeah I it it enriches my life and it and it helps me feel connected to the rest of my family who's into music and I just feel really glad and, and I'm really grateful for that music education that I got. Thank you so much, Madeline and Brian, for sharing your story and all of your wisdom
0: and your experience with us. You guys are amazing.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Christine. <laughs>
1: yes, thank you. It's fun. Well, you know, it's always fun to talk about yourself, right? <laughs>
2: Musician, we're good at that. Yeah. We like. It. <laughs>
0: Next time on Musicians Vs. The World. How much of your thoughts and emotions do you think you actually control? And how much can we manipulate our bodies and minds for better performance based on what we listen to? Sounds like a Halloween special to me. Well, no, not really. But we are going to talk about music on the cellular level and how it can be used medically as well as emotionally.
1: Patients that were in critical care, they saw changes in blood flow they saw heart rate decreased, which decreases oxygen demand. They saw decreases in epinephrine, which decreases blood pressure and oxygen demand. Um, and that's all written up in the journals of critical care medicine.
0: Next time on Musicians versus the World. Musicians versus the World is produced by Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was produced by Russ Wilkes and edited by myself. Special thanks to Madeline Blanchard of the Orchestra at Temple Square and Brian Blanchard from the Utah Symphony for sharing their time and expertise with us, as well as providing the beautiful recordings of the French horn you've heard throughout this episode. The recording of Bolero was licensed from shockwavesound.com, and A Ghost Halloween is being used with permission from RPR Studios. And a very special thanks to my daughter for letting me record her wonderful clarinet playing in the introduction. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out on any future conversations. We try to get an episode out every three weeks or so. If there's a topic that you would love to hear about, send us an email at info@frostedlens.com. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and on our Musicians vs. the World section of the Frosted Lens website.
2: And that website is frostedlens.com.